Who is God and what is he like? Uh, that's the question we're seeking to answer with this series, Radiant God Grasping His Greatness. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important reality about every single one of us in this room. Tozer goes on in that quote, he says, we could determine with some degree of certainty what the spiritual future of any man or woman might be when we can answer the question, what is their conception of God? That our worship of this God is either pure or base as we entertain high or low thoughts about him. Who is this God? I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a few key moments in my life where my view of God Almighty was radically altered. Like everything up until this point, I thought I knew who God was. I had this idea in my mind and I spent a lot of time like talking to God and instructing God and informing God and telling God how to be God. And then at each of these moments, it was like, whoa, that changes everything. Uh, the first one was uh, back when I was around 13 years old, and it was the first time that I had heard Louis Giglio's presentation on how great is our God. Uh, what he's trying to do is he's just trying to demonstrate the magnitude of the universe that God has spoken into existence. And so he goes through this whole thing where he talks about like if the earth were the size of a golf ball, here's how many golf balls could fit in some of these stars that God breathed out of his mouth. Uh, one of them he talks about, you know, if the earth were the size of a golf ball, then you could fit 960,000 earths inside of the sun. Then he zooms out and he says, now the biggest star that's ever been discovered in the universe, it's called Canis Majoris, and you could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside this one star. He says that's enough Earths, if the Earth were the size of a golf ball, to cover the state of Texas 22 inches deep. When I heard that, I was like, Whoa, I thought I knew what I was dealing with here. Now I understand a little bit more. Giglio says in that presentation, sin has a way of shrinking God down and puffing ourselves up. The next opportunity was my first international ministry trip. Uh, I was in Trinidad, and uh, when I got there, it was the first third world country that I had been to, and I looked around and I saw the devastation and destruction that sin has brought into this world. Now, of course, I had seen it. I'd seen it in my own life. I'd seen it all around me in my friends' lives, but it's so palpable when you see it physically manifested everywhere around you. And so there I was seeing all of this hurt and this destruction and these people's lives that were in shambles as they lived in destitute poverty. And I remember in that moment just kind of thinking like, wow, I thought sin was kind of a small thing. And so a small sin only needs a small God. But if this is what's going on in our hearts and in our lives and in the world around us, this whole sin thing is a really, really big deal. And it requires a big big God to deal with it. Fast forward, it was my freshman year at Palm Beach Atlantic University. It was as hard to go there as it sounds. 
Uh, my dorm room was called Ocean View, but someone has to do it. Uh, so there I was. I went to chapel one morning, and the guy who was preaching, he reads Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. And I don't know if I just read it by myself at some point, or if this was the first time that my ears heard it, or if this was just the first time that the Spirit of God took these words from the Bible and pressed them into my heart in such a way. But I remember hearing it. It's Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. God says this, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, up until really hearing that passage, I had spent a lot of time thinking about this is Cody's world. Welcome, I'm so glad you can live in it. Here's how you can serve me. This is all about me and God exists so that he can serve me in all that I'm desiring. When I read that passage, when I heard that, I was blown away at the God-centeredness of God, that he does all things for the glory of his name. And how sad would it be if we arrived in eternity and saw the Lord and the Lord said, hey, you're supreme, not me. That would be a very, very sad reality. The Lord used that in a big way in my life. Uh, The next opportunity was at a leadership conference for pastors and church leaders. There were 12,000 of us gathered together in the room and uh, Francis Chan was speaking there. If you don't know Francis Chan, just think Nate Schmidt on steroids, okay? Uh, so Francis, he gets up there, and uh, they, he, he, the first thing he says was, well, they wanted me to speak about this, but instead I'm going to speak about that. And so he said, listen, in a room of 12,000 pastors and church leaders, I don't want to assume anything or take anything for granted. And so he said, so tonight I just want to share with you the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And there in that room with 12,000 others gathered together, he just read very slowly, very calmly, Romans chapter five, verses one through 11, where it talks about God dying for the ungodly. That one would scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps someone would dare even die for a good man. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He read Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, where it talks about us being dead in our sins and in our trespasses, being sons and daughters of disobedience and destined for wrath. But God, because of his great mercy and loving us with the great love with which he did, made us alive together with Christ. That by grace through faith, we can be saved and we can be raised up with Christ to spend eternity with him. He concluded with 1 Peter chapter 5 where he talked about the Lord himself will strengthen, confirm, and establish you when we see him in glory. I remember being deeply challenged by that reality and thinking this man speaks about the Lord in a way that is totally unknown to me. The seeming relationship that he has with the Lord, it makes me thirsty, it makes me hungry for more of a relationship with the Lord. Have you ever been around someone who just makes you feel that way? The Lord did that that day for me. Uh, Then it was October 2nd of 2010. This was my wedding day. And there we were uh, standing outside in the sweltering October heat in Florida in a nice black suit and the door opens and there's my bride in her white dress and I was a blubbering moron standing up front. Now here's the worst part. Uh, The walk from the back to the front was so long, like painfully long, so I'm just weeping and wailing up there for like what seemed like 10 minutes. 
Uh, I remember thinking, though, Ephesians chapter 5. The Lord calls his church his bride. And the love that I felt for my bride in that moment, the overwhelming love that I had for her, made me think even just so slightly of the love that the Lord has for us. His church, his bride. Then it was 2013 and 2015. These were the first two breaths that my children took on this earth, uh, Asher and Everly. And I remember them coming into existence and seeing how beautiful and how wonderful they were and also how fragile and helpless and dependent they were. And just remember thinking, we never really grow out of that helplessness. We never really become more independent. We're always just as feeble and as fragile as they were in that moment. The Lord used each of these moments to really challenge me in my view of who God is and reveal to me more of who he's already proclaimed himself to be in his word. You see, sometimes we get the wrong view of God in our minds and that makes everything else askew in life. We tend to think of God sometimes like maybe one of these Uh, The first one is like an overly loving grandfather. Uh, He's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who really is just super easy to talk to. He's got all kinds of wishes, but certainly has no demands. He can be safely ignored for a while, and he's always grateful for any time that he can get with me. Uh, Second, maybe you think about God like a Santa Claus God, just jolly old God, sit up on his lap, Tell him all the things that you've ever wanted and then put milk and cookies out for him one time a year and then on December 25th, expect all of it to arrive neatly packed under the tree. Uh, Sometimes we treat God like he's a lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, This little good luck charm that we attach to our lives. I remember when I was growing up, which was a long, long time ago, uh, putting these lucky rabbit's foots onto our backpacks. And then it's like when you really wanted something, you would take that lucky rabbit's foot and you'd kind of rub it. And it's like, that girl's really cute. I want to date her or whatever it was. Uh, God is not like that. He's not just some good luck charm that we add onto our lives and then like rub when we really want to get something. God, I need this now. It's time for you to show up and then I'll put you away until the next time. Uh, God is not like Sid from Toy Story. Some sadistic maniac who sits up in the heavens with a magnifying glass and just can't wait to scorch your life in some kind of creative and painful way. God is not like that. Brothers and sisters, I know that there are some of you in the room who maybe feel that way right now. Finally, God is not just some nebulous force, uh, just some out there somewhere. I know it's baby Yoda. Everyone take it in. And we're good. I didn't even know that this existed. I was telling people what I wanted to do this week, and they're like, you'd be culturally relevant if you did that. There it is. Uh, He's not some nebulous force some undefined, not really sure much about it, certainly can't have relationship with it, just a force out there to be manipulated or explored. At the end of the day, God is not like you and he's not like me. He's not like anything else in all of existence. God is utterly unique. He is utterly unique, and this is what it means for God to be holy. 
in Psalm chapter 50, uh, the Lord is rebuking his people for their sins and he says this, here was your mistake, here's where things got off course. You thought that I was a man just like you. And then later in Hosea chapter 11, the Lord is talking to his people after they had rejected him and began to worship other gods. And like, it's like they broke their marriage vows with the Lord and committed adultery with these other deities. And the Lord says, I understand that if you were me right now, you would just wipe you all out. But the Lord says this in Hosea 11.9, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst. There is no holy two, there is only the holy one and he is utterly unique, completely different, set apart and distinct from everyone and everything in existence. I like the way John Piper describes and defines the holiness of God. Here's a story that he shared. He says, when something is unique, it's really rare. It's absolutely rare. So I asked my wife, Noel, this is Piper talking on Friday night, why is gold used as the standard of our money? Why do we prize gold so highly? And she accurately said, well, because it's rare. I said, yeah, but there are fish that are really rare. And she said, well, gold has some permanence, but fish rot and get smelly. They can't be the standard of anything, no matter how rare they are. And I said, that's right. So you got rare and you got permanence, and I would add accessibility, Piper continues. There are rocks probably underneath this floor so far down that are way more rare than gold, but you can't get at some, and so they're useless. They're no help to being the monetary standard at all. There are fish at the bottom of the sea that nobody has ever caught or even classified, and they're no use either. So you've got rare, you've got permanence, and you've got accessibility. And I think the uniqueness of God is all of that. He's the rarest of all beings. He is absolute permanence. And in Jesus Christ, he has made himself accessible. Therefore, Piper draws this as his concluding definition, a definition of the indefinable. And it's there in your notes. God is infinitely valuable. God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is and who by grace has made himself accessible through Jesus Christ. God's holiness, his infinite value, his absolute unique, moral, perfect, permanent person that he is, making himself available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the holiness of God, when we think about the way the Bible talks about the holiness of God, uh, it really, there's two facets to it. There's this majestic holiness that we've been describing so far that we're gonna continue to explore here this morning, this set-apartness, this greatness and grandeur and magnificence of God. And then there's also this moral purity component. If you've been doing your small group study this week, it's really keyed in on that moral purity that God is absolutely perfect in all that he does. Uh, but this morning we look at the greatness, the majestic holiness of God. And as we begin now to trace that through scripture, let's ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Father, we recognize that we enter holy space and stand on holy ground. 
that you would reveal a little of yourself to us and to know that there is infinitely more that we will explore for all eternity is nothing but glory and joy and we give honor and praise to your name. Father, now as we consider your holiness, would you help us to consider it rightly? Would you help us to see these truths, to hear these truths, and would they go further than our ears, but would they sink into our hearts, and would this be a moment for all of us that radically alters the way that we see you, not because of my words, but because of yours. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Tracing the concept of God's majestic holiness in the scriptures. The first place that we see God being called holy is in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, this was after 400 years of slavery, God's people being oppressed and in bondage in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, this culture that is worshiping these pagan deities, God wants to demonstrate that there is no God like Yahweh, like our God, like the God of the Bible. And so what we see here is, are these 10 plagues of releasing God's people from bondage. And when you just look at them at face value, it's like, that's really weird. Why did God decide to do it that way? Well, when we understand a little bit about the Egyptian culture, we see that at every point with each plague, God is demonstrating this so-called God, not really a God at all. Let me show you what God can really do. Uh, there's an Egyptian god called Hapi. Uh, he's the god of the Nile River. And so what's the first plague? Well, God causes the entire river of water to turn into a river of blood. Hapi has no control over the Nile. The creator of the heavens and the earth has control over all things. Hecht, he's a god with the head of a frog. Why would God make there be innumerable frogs show up in Egypt? To demonstrate hecht has got nothing on me. I'm God and there is no other. Or what about this one, Geb? He's the God of the dust of the earth. If I'm gonna be a God, I don't want to be that one, right? Like <laughs> dust of the earth. Uh, and so what does the Lord do? He takes the dust of the earth and he turns it into gnats and multiplies them over Egypt. The ninth plague, when it ought to be daytime, it is complete and utter darkness. The God Ra, the God of the sun, has nothing on Yahweh. Finally, Pharaoh in Egyptian culture is seen as God and therefore his son was the son of a God who was to become God. Plague number 10, the Lord demonstrates absolute supremacy and authority over Pharaoh and his household and all of Egypt. There is one God and it is Yahweh God. Exodus chapter 15 verses 11 through 13. Moses sings this song after God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. There is no God like our God. There is none to compare him with. All other so-called gods are not really gods at all. They have no life. They have no power. They have no nothing when they stand before the Lord Almighty. Almighty. 
There is one God, and he is utterly different from the rest of creation, majestic in holiness. You fast forward to the end of the book of Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 40. God has just given these elaborate instructions for how Moses is to erect the tabernacle. This was going to be a portable tent, a place where God would meet with man, where he would manifest his presence in a unique way on the earth. And as the Lord comes and he moves in, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and his people worship. This leads us into the book of Leviticus. If holy God is moving into the camp, then how do we and unholy people live in his midst? The Lord gives 11 chapters of instruction on how the profane are to make themselves holy. And then he says this in Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. God is saying, what you need to know about me is that I'm different, I'm unique, I am completely other, and if you're to be my people, if you're to be my treasured possession in all of the earth, then you too must be distinct. You too must be holy and set apart and other just as I am. In righteousness and in practice, the Lord calls his people to be a holy people just as he is holy. Now, if you would, please uh, grab a Bible in front of you if you don't have one already uh, and turn to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, we're gonna look at verses one through five. If you're grabbing one of the Bibles there in front of you, it's on page 534. Isaiah chapter six, here's what's happening. Uh, In the Bible, there are some really weird and interesting things. And what we see here is Isaiah entering into this supernatural vision. When we say supernatural, we mean that which is beyond natural and normal. And that's what we believe in when we believe the scriptures, that there is something that exists, a reality outside of this present existence. Isaiah finds himself with a vision of the supernatural, this scene in the throne room of heaven. Isaiah chapter six, verses one through five, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if you read the next verse, I don't think that's exactly what it was like. You see, because verse four says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So rather it was holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then one cries to another and back and forth, day and night, they never cease to proclaim the holiness, the perfect holiness of God. And when they do so, there are earthquakes and there is smoke. And Isaiah is standing there and he's caught up into this heavenly scene and there he sees the Lord, the king of glory, seated on his throne and he hears these seraphim, these unlike creatures proclaiming the holiness of God and when he sees it, he says, woe, woe is me. 
for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. He is instantly confronted with his sinfulness when he comes face to face with God's holiness. And his only response is to cry out in agony, woe is me. This is not dissimilar to what Job did when Pastor Doug was preaching a few weeks ago. My, I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I repent in dust and ashes. He recognizes that in light of the holiness of God, he deserves nothing but death. This God is unlike anything that you and I have ever experienced, seen, or known about, or conceived of in our own thinking. Turn please to Revelation chapter four. Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. This is John, he's on the island of Patmos around 90 AD after being exiled because of his unwavering faith and trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is, he is caught up in the spirit and he sees what Isaiah saw 750 years earlier, which just helps us to know that this is the scene, brothers and sisters, that is going on right now. Even as we sit in this room on the west side of Indiana, there is a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne where the angels around him are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. After this, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. Golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. This scene is happening right now. The holiness of God is being proclaimed and one day we will enter into this scene and we will join the 24 elders bowing down before the throne and saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive it all. 
one particular detail in this description that I'm struck by is this flashes of lightning and these peals of thunder. Uh, I grew up in Florida, and in Florida we have little tiny baby storms, right? Like a little bit of rain in the afternoon, and it's nice and pleasant, and maybe some heat lightning, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I was still, I have like a, a fear of thunderstorms. I would say it's a healthy fear. Some would say unhealthy. Uh, my very last baseball game ever in eighth grade, there was thunder and lightning. I just walked off the field. I'm like, I ain't playing that game, right? Uh, then we move to Indiana. <laughs> Things are different here. Thunderstorms are a completely different beast in Indiana. I remember my wife and I, we were renting a house in Pittsburgh, so we had a lot of land around us and kind of out there on our own in the middle of a field. And I remember the first night, there's like this full-size bed and we're both laying on it, and all of a sudden, flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder shook the house. And I just said, baby, will you please hold me? <laughs> But reading this passage and thinking about Indiana thunderstorms, it reminds me every time of the magnificent holiness of God. Like there is something terrifying that puts us right in our place when we're finding ourselves in the midst of an Indiana thunderstorm and we know how quickly, how little power we have and how great God's power is. His holiness is unlike. It's just as like Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's having a conversation with Susan and Susan says, he says to her, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. He's the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Dear friends, this God that we worship in his holiness, he is not safe, but he is good. He is infinitely valuable as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. He is utterly unique. So what do I, what do you, what do we in this room do with this reality? What do we do when confronted with the holiness of God? How does it intersect with our lives right here, right now? Perhaps for some of us, it's an Isaiah, it's a Job, it's a John moment. Woe is me, I repent, oh Lord, forgive me for thinking that my wisdom was greater than yours. But for each of us, I think Isaiah 55 verses eight through nine, begins to help us understand how God's holiness intersects with our every day. Isaiah 55, eight and nine here on the screen, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because God is holy, his thoughts and his ways are superior to mine. Because God is holy, his thoughts and his ways are superior to mine. God is not like you and me and all God's people said, amen. He is utterly different. His thoughts, his ways, they're higher. By higher we mean superior. 
He doesn't process the world like you and I do. He doesn't come at a situation with limited knowledge, experience, or power. God has infinite experience as the ancient of days, the eternally existent one. He has infinite power to do all things and infinite knowledge and wisdom. Pastor Nate preached last week, God knows all things infinitely. He knows all things intricately and he knows you and me intimately. There has never been a situation that God has entered into without complete power, complete wisdom, complete knowledge, and complete ability to do what needs to be done. He doesn't do things the way that you and I would do things. How so? Just scan the scriptures and consider the way that God moves redemptive history and think of how you might have done it differently. Consider these parts. Uh, God... In Genesis 1 through 3, he puts a tree in the middle of the garden that if Adam and Eve were to consume fruit from this tree, it would bring death and destruction and carnage and chaos into this world. I wouldn't have set it up that way. Like, it would have been foolproof. We can't mess this one up, right? But God in his wisdom knows that that wouldn't be love. That wouldn't be relationship. That would be imprisonment. And so the Lord's ways are higher than mine. Or what about this? Uh, God tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, take Isaac, the son that you waited 100 years for. I want you to go on a long walk with him. When you get to the top of the mountain, I want you to put a big pile of sticks together, then take a knife, kill your son, and light him on fire. I wouldn't have come up with that. That would not have crossed my mind. And yet the Lord knows, hey, here's how Abraham is gonna demonstrate his trust in me. Here's how Abraham is gonna demonstrate his righteousness by his faith in me and in me alone that he would trust in me that I could even raise his son from the dead. That Abraham would love me more than he would love anyone else. God allows his people to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. You would think after 400 years, generation after generation after generation of hard work and bondage and oppression and slavery, it's like take them out of there and bring them to the Caribbean. God says, no, we're going to bring them to Canaan, like the military hot zone of the ancient Near East, the most contested piece of land, and they're going to have to depend on me every single day for their physical safety. And oh yeah, it doesn't rain here unless God makes it rain here. So we've got to depend on him every day for food in our pantries. What about God when he's looking to bring up a new king after Saul fails? He sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And what does Samuel do? Exactly what you and I would have done. Hey, uh, bring the oldest son. Or bring the strongest son. God looks at them, no, not the guy. Nope, not him. Hey, there's one more. He's a little shepherd boy. He's out in the field with some, with some sheep right now. He's gonna be the king of my people. He's gonna be the one who conquers all of the people around you and establishes peace in Israel. How would you and I rescue our people from sin? It's like, man, you send Jesus, the Messiah King, and when he comes, it is just judgment and wrath on all of God's enemies, and he demonstrates his complete and perfect power, thus vindicating those who have believed in him. The father's like, hey, Jesus, you're gonna go as a baby. You're gonna be born to an obscure family. For 30 years, you're gonna grow up in obscurity. You're gonna have three years to proclaim the kingdom and the gospel, and then you're gonna die on a cross. 
That's how I'm going to save my people. What about getting this good news, this gospel to the nations? Like if it were me and I were the one who were calling the plays, it would be like painted in the sky. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Next scene, right? Or like send angels out into all the world and proclaim in mighty power the good things that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's plan? One by one, believing yet still sinful people, slowly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with their neighbors, with their coworkers, with the people that God has sovereignly brought into their lives. By the way, it's been 2,000 years since he called that play. I definitely would have done it faster. We have the inclination to create a world where no one rejects Jesus, a world where all people are saved. The Lord in his kindness gives us Romans 9, 21 through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What about growing in Christ? God promises us that one day, we will be like Jesus in that we won't sin anymore. Not just free from the penalty of sin, but free from the power and the presence of sin. And if you're like me, I'm thinking, God, why not today? Like if you're gonna do that someday, let's do it now because I'm tired of waking up every morning and battling the flesh. If you're gonna make me sinless, let's do it now. And the Lord says, it's not my way. You see, there's something about your dependence and your weakness that demonstrates my ability and my strength and I receive more glory in that than if I would have done it a different way. At every possible turn, you and I, with our limited wisdom, with our limited experience and our limited power, would have done it differently. But our God has thoughts and ways that are far far superior to ours. So superior that sometimes it even appears as foolishness. And I don't know about you and what's going on in your life and what the areas are specifically in your day-to-day -day where you're like, Lord, if it were me, I would do it different. Lord, if it were me, I would do it faster. Lord, if it were me, it wouldn't be this hard. Brother and sister, can I comfort and encourage you this morning with the holiness of God. Trust him. His ways, his thoughts, they're superior, they're better, they're higher than yours and mine. And oh, that God would save us from the kind of thinking that we could do it better. And would we ever bow in humility before his absolute holiness. He is not safe, but he is good. God's perfect holiness assures us that our words cannot contain him. There is no way for any one of us in this room to exaggerate our God. And so, Father, we 
leave it there. Considering your perfect holiness, your utter uniqueness, your magnificent glory. Because of your word, we can say our eyes have in some way seen the king. Would we have right fear and right trembling of that holiness? Would we also have right boldness and right confidence because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ? Thank you, God, that you are not like us. God, I pray that we would not be quick to have truth amnesia as we go back into our weeks, but that we would put these truths front and center by the power of your spirit, considering your holiness in the midst of our day-to-day and resting in the hope and in the truth that your ways, your thoughts are higher than ours. In Christ's name.